0: where my handle is at turkeyhitman, and I will be sure to follow you back. And now, for this week's show. Hello and welcome back to this week's episode of the Turkey Hunter Podcast. You are listening to episode number 248, the Future of Hunting Seminar, from the 2019 NWTF Convention. And I am your host... And the guy who is embarrassed to say that I struggled for an hour and a half to put the bush hog on my tractor this past Saturday. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that in just a minute. But today, right this very second, we are 233 days, 11 hours, 10 minutes, and 50 seconds away from opening day of spring turkey season in Alabama. So I went out to my property south of Birmingham to check on the chufa that I planted a couple of weeks ago, and you guys probably remember me telling you that the bracket that attaches the axle to the frame of the disc for my tractor fell on my foot that weekend. But my buddy Todd and I got chufa in the ground anyway, and we hoped for rain. And we hoped for me to not get eaten out of house and home down there. So this weekend was my first weekend to go back down there after planting. And what did I discover? I discovered the field that I planted for the second time, looking like the surface of the moon. There were craters everywhere in the field. So I've been eaten out of house and home by the deer, the coons, the turkeys, the crows, the possums, the peacock, and any other critter around there that loves chufa. And I had exactly zero chufa sprouting up. So I've given up on chufa for the year down there. And I went ahead and decided to go ahead and spray the Johnson grass that was growing in my field because I need to get rid of that stuff. Otherwise it's going to continue to take over the field. And I also decided that it was time to pull the disc off of the tractor and put the bush hog on. Now I'm sure that many of you guys know that changing an implement on a tractor is a much easier process if there's an extra set of hands to help you. Well, I didn't have that extra set of hands Saturday, so I was taken on this job by myself and having grown up in a family of farmers, now my family were plant farmers, They owned garden centers and they did landscaping, but they were farmers nonetheless. I have changed a lot of implements on tractors, skid steers, and back hose and all sorts of equipment. I'm usually semi-fast at changing those things out by myself. I know that a lot of your success or failure depends on lining everything up properly when you either pull the machine in or back the machine in to the implement you want to attach. And even though I know that, that's where I went wrong from the very start. But nonetheless, I got the bush hog connected, did maybe 15 minutes of bush hogging when I need to do about three hours worth, but I ran out of time to do any more, but I'm ready for next weekend. So I can get all of my cutting done next weekend that I need to do. And of course, I'll have to cut one more time before I disc to plant my food plots, but at least it'll look a little bit better between now and then. And I think it'll make it a little bit easier for me when I go to spray my fields to kill all of the weeds and grasses that are growing in them. So no chufa. And I think I've realized that next year, I'm obviously gonna have to plant a little bit earlier, get my chufa in the ground a little earlier. And I think I also need to over seed so I'm probably going to plan on putting about 50% more seed in the ground than what I really need. It's not a huge area that I'm planting chufa in and if I have to I can come in and spot spray some of it over the course of two or three trips down to thin out the chufa that way if too much of it comes up. But if I don't get rain and get it quickly after I plant it then I know I'm going to get eaten out of house and home again next year. Hey, I've got another good episode for you guys today, and it is the seminar put on by Cuz Strickland, Fred Zink, Jimmy Primos, Jeremiah Dowdy, and Matt Moret from the 2019 NWTF convention in Nashville. The seminar is called The Future of Hunting. Now, this week... I've got a ton of stuff going on with work so I'm going to be very brief today and before I start the recording I need to tell you that Cameron recorded this episode for me at the NWTF convention and that was extremely helpful and because there were five presenters in this seminar it was impossible to mic up everyone but we've actually got really good audio. I'm just not sure what Cameron was doing with the microphone while he was sitting there in the seminar. I think maybe he had the microphone clipped onto his shirt and then his media badge was rubbing up against the microphone anytime that he would move. Now, it's not so bad during the seminar, but it's really bad during some of the Q&A part of the seminar. So what I've done is I've got the entire seminar playing from start to finish of this episode and i cut the q and a part of the seminar off of the episode and i put it onto the tail end of the show so if you've ever listened to the outro of the show and you hear the shotgun blast and the turkey flop today if you stay tuned you're going to hear the q and a portion of the seminar There's really some good stuff in the Q&A portion of the seminar, but I felt like the audio was a little noisy and it's a little bit harder to hear because when people in the audience stand up to ask a question, they don't always talk very loud. So, Some of it can be hard to hear, but there really is some good info, so I didn't want to just cut it out and not have it for you guys. Listen to it at the tail end of the episode if you're interested in learning a little bit more about what these guys are talking about in the seminar. Anyway, here is the Future of Hunting seminar. Listen in closely, and I will see you guys on the other side.
1: If you'll spend 90% of your time on finding you a place to hunt, no matter how much work that is, the rest of it will come naturally. You know, it ain't no magic call. There is no magic technique. It's all about having dirt or turkeys there. That may not be what some people tell you, but I'm just telling you what I've learned over 50 years of chasing turkeys is you gotta have the dirt, man. That's the main most thing. I spend a lot of time maneuvering to have spots or I can lock it up or not. If I can just go there one or two times, you know, just having options. Especially having to get hunted a lot. But that, to me, that's the key, is having plenty of spots to do it. So, you got to speak up. I'm old now. Public land? You know, I still do public land. I, I grew up hunting in the Homacheta National Forest. That's the only place I had till I was in my early mid 20s and toward the end of that i didn't even go out there except afternoons because in the mornings there was so many people out there hooting and, I, and i did most of my hunting out there in the afternoon and was way more successful so it depends on how much pressure it gets but land is a whole nother game that's a whole nother level of turkey hunting but i, I don't mind trying He's I big. Still do big throwing that tube call trying to locate a turkey. Frankie's
2: there, he's got his turkey vest on, which is down by his <laughs> ankle. And cuz coming over and blow that tube call this way on Cranky. He took here, hands up
1: like that. He's gonna be a pro. Yeah, a pro. he's pretty unique. We do have, the, the place where we hunted, what he named the Devil Turkey is, 10 minutes from my house. And it's uh, one old long beard. He's got two running mates with him and he, it's one of them turkeys you'd call to, he would answer. He'd come to about 150 yards, and that's it. I'm sure you've encountered that. And there's three turkeys in the same spot this year. I put some trail cameras out, so can I say it's the devil turkey? I don't know. The odds are pretty good, but I can tell you this, it opens in, you season opens in uh, Mississippi like March the 7th or 8th, we'll be sitting there. I, I can't take cranky and run and gun and slip and all that. It's it's a ground blind, that limits your it ain't how i'm used to him, but it's what it's going to take because he's real small but yeah we're going after him and he's, that's all he talks about so that's that's good to get him imprinted that little so cranky's a unique kid he don't care if you're filming or not he's he, he's just uh he's all about painting his face and staying outside so, <laughs> that's what we need to do is keep more faces painted and keep them outside cranky
2: <laughs> is his mother's name is laura that's uh Cousin's baby daughter, youngest, youngest daughter, Lauren. You know, Cuz used to work for us. Lauren, Lauren came to the office one day, and she had on her fairy costume, you know, wings and everything. And she had a magic wand, and she said, do "You want me? Uh, do you want me to bless you?" And I said, "Yeah, that'd be great." So I got down on my knees and she took that magic wand, which really was a plexiglass rod, you know, hard plexiglass rod, and she went, wham! <laughs> it's a true story. I mean, I'm seeing stars <coughs> and, and cussing, Lord, why'd you hit him so hard? That's my balls. <laughs> she, she, she said, the harder you do it, the better the blessing is.
1: <laughs>
3: so that's
2: where cranky gets his. Breath.
4: We'll go ahead and get started. Good morning, Uh, appreciate everybody coming in this morning. My name is Travis Sumner. I'm the Hunting Heritage Center and Habitat Manager at NWTF. A little bit about myself there, I manage uh, the property that we have there from a habitat standpoint, but I'm also part of our hunting heritage team. And part of my job is to have our mentor hunt program that we have, taking out new people, getting involved in hunting, uh, letting them experience it for the first time. Uh, working with mentors to train them to know what their responsibility is and what part and what role they play in uh, taking a new hunter out. Um, before most of you introduce our panel, you know, think about this. How many of you can remember your first hunt? Very first hunt that you went on. All right, how many in this room have never hunted? please raise your hand. There's no embarrassment. There you go. We got one guy. There we go. We've got a prospect in the room. That's awesome. Do you remember who the first person was that took you on your hunt? And what impact that person had on you? And what was the drive after that that made you want to continue to hunt or be in the outdoors? You know, for us that have done it all our lives and experienced it, been out there on a the spring morning, uh, been in a cold duck blind watching sunrises that a lot of people don't get to experience, you know, it, there's something about that. And every time we have a class at NWTF or a group of new hunters, you know, everybody thinks it's about filling the tags. It's about the biggest buck. It's about, you know, the longest spurs on the gobbler, killing that limited of ducks. It's not about that. We tell you it's about that experience. It's that first time experience. It's that lasting experience that you have that you'll remember. Because everybody <laughs> in this room remembers your first hunt you went on correct? Remember the first animal you are. <coughs> so that's what's really neat. You know, hunting today, if you're not familiar with it, a lot of us in this room don't know this. You may or you may not. Hunting is on a decline. Our, our traditional thing that we grew up with Hunter numbers are on a decline because the generation today doesn't know anything about it. You know, the, the parents, parents of our young people, we're always talking about our youth, but there's a generation out there, if you look and you talk to state agencies and you look at that, hunter numbers are on a decline drastically. Everybody in this room, you know, the guys up front, myself, you as hunters, you know, hunting is a viable part of wildlife management. You are a wildlife manager. You don't have to have a whole list of degrees behind you. You as a hunter play a vital role in habitat and wildlife management. Hunters pay for conservation. They pay for the resource. If you guys, and we don't have people hunting, buying licenses, buying ammunition, buying guns to support the conservation efforts, our sport will slowly, slowly slip away. And it's gonna take an effort not just from conservation organizations, the hunting industry. We've got to get people involved. You've got to have that want or that drive to get out there and to want to introduce someone that first time. I told somebody the other day what Mary meant to me and I said, well, you know, I've had an opportunity to be um, hunting for about 30 years. I made a career out of, of wildlife management, had opportunity to work with some of these folks in the industry with them experience great hunts, tag out, do all that good stuff. But today, what's great <coughs> to me, if I never shot or tagged out a turkeys, shot a beef, booming crocketh, still no one of the dust, the thrill that I get now is to watch that first time person and see how they experience that. Hunting to us has always been a tradition. It's always been a part of our life. It's not about being there on a deer stand, you know, and harvesting that deer. That's part of it, but it's after the hunt. It's the friendships you make. It's the camaraderie. It's sitting around the campfire telling stories. It's taking what you harvested that day. Preparing it for a meal. You know, for a lot of us in this room, hunting has been about, it's always been, you know, a passion and an obsession. It's been about speaking the language. It's been about a champion in every call, sounding like a champion when you call. And now, you know, it's all about the generation today. It's about bringing it from the field to the plate. And we're very honored to have some of the top names in the industry that I feel like (coughs) can make an impact and their companies will make an impact. And they have an interest and want to know how and, and get involved in this new hunter recruitment and get people involved. But I'm very privileged today to have these guys. I'm honored to have them and I appreciate their time that they're taking to discuss this with you guys. You know, from Mossy Oak, we have Mr. Cudd Strickland. From Zinc Calls and Avian X Decoys, Mr. Fred Zinc. From Primos Honey, Mr. Jimmy Primos. We have Mr. Jeremiah Dowdy. Some of you may have heard him. He's got a program called Fill to Plate. And last but not least, Mr. Matt Moret from Zinc and APNH.
1: <coughs> my, my first hunt. My dad was a lifelong military guy. He was in the army forever, and he retired. He was a big fisherman. He didn't hunt a whole lot, but uh, first hunt was in the home of Cheetah National Forest with him and my older brother. And I think I hunted probably three years out there before I ever saw a deer. You know, had a 20 gauge Stevens pump with slugs in it, and the first deer I killed, I was probably 12 years old. But it was. Uh, it was just something about it. I have an older brother who's five years older than me, and he was infatuated with fishing, and I got infatuated with hunting. Although my dad didn't do a lot, it just quit for me. So uh, I echo I, I, I your thoughts. My whole world now revolves around pop up blinds and snacks and crossbows <laughs> for little knuckleheads. I'm just infested with them out there, and I will cherish every minute of that. But to see what happens with them on their first hunts, so what means a lot. Those memories are a lot more vivid than my first one in the Homewood National Forest. So. <laughs>
4: Fred, um,
3: I was so young I probably couldn't remember. My uh, I, I grew up in a family that hunted and fished. My uh, my great grandpa was a fishing guide. Uh, my dad hunted his entire life. He grew up in northern Indiana. I was in elk camp when I was three years old in Rocky Mountains. So I just. Uh, Grew up on a family farm in in Ohio, and uh, basically hunted and fished every day of my youth. Um, and uh, we had obviously plenty of land to hunt on. I just grew up hunting, and fishing. It's kind of what I did since I could walk, per se. So uh, started carrying a gun when I was nine years old. But my father's and my grandpa is who got me involved. My uncle, and my cousins. I, I just grew up in a family across the board that hunts and fish. So done in my entire life first animal I ever killed with a blue winged teal with a 20 gauge at uh, Indian Lake in Ohio so that was I think I was about eight and a half nine nine years old something like that so that's how I got started just just like a walk I guess. Awesome. Mr. Jimmy.
2: Uh, well I think thinking back my first hunt was probably a, a dove hunt with my father and his friends I had a little H&R single barrel hammer 410 shotgun and uh, I remember, you know, Just I, I probably shot a lot and I don't think I really hit much, but I'd go out and pick Daddy's birds up. and uh, For some reason, I, I just, from that moment on, I can remember I, I, I loved shooting guns. And uh, we lived on a about a 50-acre little farm right there north of Jackson, Mississippi. And had squirrels and uh, quail and birds on it and stuff like that. So when we got home, not too long after that first dove hunt, Daddy let me take that... I was, four or five years old let me take that 410 just go out in the woods and uh um, you know some people say ask me when i tell them that i said four or five years old and he gave you a 410 gave me a 410 let me go out with 410 he gave me his smith and wesson 38 special that he had in the navy that he brought home from the war and let me go out and shoot that and i shot a squirrel with it out of a tree i'll never forget i don't think i could ever hit a squirrel again with that same pistol but i, I did and they said it well, wasn't that wasn't that dangerous? And I said, yeah, thinking back on it, it, probably was. He was probably hoping I'd have a hunting accident or something. Because <laughs> I think I was I was eight or nine years old before I realized my first name was not Dangit. <laughs> but uh, that was just kind of a, you know, hunting hunting and fishing in my family was just something we did. Will's daddy, now, you, know, you all know my cousin Will. We're cousins, not brothers. Uh, Will's daddy, Uncle Kenneth, was all into the business end of the family business, so he didn't have much time to hunt or fish. So Will kind of always tagged around with us, and, uh, much much to my displeasure because he was a pain in the neck, still is. <laughs> and I used to take Will on that on that family. We had we had pellet guns and BB guns, and we'd go out and shoot shoot blackbirds and squirrels, whatever. we hold still long enough to shoot. I remember the first thing Will ever shot with a pellet rifle was a red winged blackbird and I told him they were good to eat so we plucked it and uh, I let him build a fire and he, he cooked it and he ate it <laughs> <laughs> nobody ever cued Will being too bright <laughs>
5: but and that's what it was on that family place with my father Thank you. Jeremiah. yeah I've got a different story for most of these guys because I'm from Southern California um, so it's not this deep rooted heritage it's quite the opposite uh, so I have actually two first-time hunting stories. First time actually on a hunt itself was a dove hunt uh, with my family because being in Southern California, birds are primarily what we're going to hunt. And I remember hearing stories of my grandpa talk about sitting on the hood of a car in the middle of desert California waiting for the sun to rise to shoot dove. And at seven years old, I told my dad that's what I want to do. And my dad was that kind of dad that said, well, if that's what you want to do, let's go do it. And so I had an over-under 410 Sears shotgun. We went out there on my first dove hunt. Um, and I remember vividly sleeping on the hood of the car. Sun came up, 112 degree weather in Southern California, shooting doves coming over the cotton field. Um, Vividly with my dad, my uncle, my grandpa. Like that was the first instant of hunting in my life, and that's what drove me to it. Uh, Fast forward to 25, and still only a dove hunter, and a little bit of hunters, Um, and I went on my first big game hunt by myself in the middle of Wyoming with um, a cheap rifle, a $30 scope, and a Swiss Army Knife, um, that I didn't have anybody to mentor me, I didn't have anybody to teach me, uh, sitting in the field with a dead antelope in 90 degree weather saying, what now? Um, so those are my, those are my two first time hunting stories, and that's kind of why I developed who I am and what I do, uh, was based on my dad and my uncle and my grandpa telling me stories, and then being forced to do it by myself, because um, I didn't have... A community to be around, especially in Southern California, when you talk about guys <coughs> and going to prison. So, uh, yeah, that's my two first-time hunting stories. Cool.
4: One, one bit of housekeeping. Can y'all hear in the back, guys? We might have to use the mic. So,
6: okay. anyway, I just want to make sure we hear it. Hey, Matt, tell us about yours. I'm lucky enough to come from a state where hunting is, I think, is in our blood in Pennsylvania, and and a family the same way. Everybody in my family hunted, but my dad. My dad, his first love was turkey hunting, and that's how I got started calling and just trying to mimic what I heard him and his friends doing around the house when I was in kindergarten. And my first experience that got me hooked wasn't really hunting. It was going out, sitting between his legs, and letting me call to a turkey and hearing it gobble back at me. And when the little goosebumps on the back, or the hairs on the back of your neck, and I get goosebumps thinking about it now, that hooked me for life. But in the hunting experience, When I first got to go to the woods, and like Jimmy said, we tried anything we could with a BB gun that stood still. And my first hunting experience, we had to be 12 years old back then to go to the woods and was squirrel hunting. And to be honest with you, this is something that that I talk about quite a bit. I learned everything I could about the woods in the squirrel woods. And a lot of us in here did. And I'm gonna ask a question real quick. How many of y'all grew up squirrel hunting? How many do it today? Okay, that's more than the norm. I think a lot of times we forget about our roots out there, how we learn how to go hunting, and it's been overshadowed a little bit. And that's, that's where, to me, when you're introducing somebody new, it doesn't necessarily have to be a deer or a turkey. It's about all that other stuff out there, and, it, and it'll surprise you because we all take lots of new, time, new hunters, whether it's turkey, deer, it doesn't matter what. But for me, I, every time I take a, a youngster or a 20-year-old or a 30-year-old to the woods, I try to teach them more about than just calling them a turkey. Because you wouldn't believe how many people don't know what a white oak tree looks like. And that's that's what really we, we gotta get to this day and age. But for me, I think squirrel hunting hearing that turkey gobble and getting in the squirrel woods with my dad was what just instilled that in my in my fire. And we and we live it, breathe it, eat it, sleep it 365 days a year. But awesome. Thank you guys. You know, the guys
4: expressed their first hunts and you know what what it is about the outdoors and why they love it and why we all love to be out there um i'm going to direct this from you fred and guys all just all kind of interact with this one also you know since now with the hunter decline numbers and the things that we've seen you know what impact has the industry seen with this decline in hunter numbers well i will say uh
3: I was talking to Cuz, because I didn't know really what the number was. I knew what about where it was, but it surprised me what he said it was, 11 and a half million. And, uh, it wasn't that long ago we were 19 million, right? So I, I will say this, uh, I'm talking from the experience of waterfowl hunting uh, especially. It's kind of where I cut my teeth, obviously turkey hunt, deer hunt, do all that. Uh, How does it affect our business? Um, it's hard to tell because our business has grown so much. Uh, that the retail explosion uh, has grown so much. A lot of the products, you go back 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you had to come to a show like this to hear somebody blow a turkey call or a goose call that really knew what they were doing, you know? Because we didn't have all the digital media, YouTube and all that. We didn't have all the dot-coms, we didn't have all the Bass Pro Cabela's and big stores everywhere. And so, in my opinion, what I've seen in the waterfowl there used to be about three million waterfowlers, okay? Now there's about 850 to 900,000. But they do it a lot more. So there's less, but there's a lot more days, in my opinion, spent in the field by a majority of the people. I remember growing up as a kid, you could pretty much go to any duck line on any lake in the state of Ohio after the first or second weekend and hunt about anywhere you wanted. There wasn't nobody was there to hunt. Now you can go there on a Wednesday and you better be there early because there's people everywhere hunting. Not as many people doing it, but the people that are doing it are doing it a lot more, in just my opinion. That's what i see seen from a standpoint of guiding, From what I see from traveling all over the United States and Canada hunting and our retail market. Our retail market is still very, very good, uh, but recruiting hunters, I think uh, we do a lot of stuff with uh, actually Ottawa National Wildlife Refuge and the, the state of Ohio. And we do youth hunts uh, where we bring them in we have a youth weekend where we bring them in we teach them how to blow duck calls how to rig decoys how to brush blinds how to shoot shotguns and once we do that then we follow up at a later date and we take all those kids there's usually about 20 to 25 of them we take them to duck hunting and so if you think about it, there's 11 and of us if every one of us takes one new person every year it's not like it's a huge feat all you have to do is introduce someone that's never hunted before, take them hunting. And I think two things are holding up hunting. Number one is access. I think we become part of our own enemy because leasing, getting permission, the competitiveness of the things going on. Leasing, you know, if a guy goes in, hey, I can kill a big deer over there i I won't try to lease that 1,000 acres. Well, there's already four people got permission to hunt it. So you go in there and lease it. Those four people, three of them might quit. So it's just this natural competitiveness. It's, that's why we're Americans. That's why we're, we're the greatest country there is. We're very competitive people, but we can be a worst enemy. But if you can take people and have success, that's why duck hunting is a very, or in, in, in case what well, Matt's talking about, turkey hunting is awesome because you probably might get a a shot at one, but hearing those turkeys gobble, I know what it did the first time I heard one, right? But duck hunting is a sport of socialism. You can sit there and talk in a duck line. I know Clubs loves duck hunting. Oh, it's my (laughs) (laughs) life. No, but duck hunting is a great it. Trust me, I've been a mini with this guy going, one more day is all we got, right? But duck hunting is a great sport, like dove hunting or whatever. It's a social sport, it's in the duck line, you see a lot of ducks, there's a lot of opportunity uh to shoot. I know uh, when we take those those young hunters hunting, typically they shoot at least a box of shells, you know, sometimes two boxes of shells. I only have two or three ducks, but they have a big time and like we there's a lot of people recruiting from inner city or all all different types of, of, of things going on and trying to get kids to be in hunting. But uh, I always just concentrate on kids that uh, lived in the area, you know, that have the access, because access is number one. Okay, you gotta have the ability to have some place to go hunting, and number two, you gotta have the introduction. I think people, humans, in general, are hunters. I think every, I think personally, when, I would throw women in here, but a man is a natural hunter. That's who we are, okay? When we're born, we're all hunters. Some get to go hunting and experience that, some do not but by nature i believe we're we've been gatherers and providers our whole life okay so and i I experienced that we do a lot of business overseas and in different countries and i had some chinese guys and taiwanese guys come to america they wanted to go duck hunting we took them duck hunting people that never have ever probably shot a gun since they were in the military we took them duck hunting. They had smiles on their faces for five days. They couldn't believe how much fun it was. So by nature, I believe we're all hunters. We just got to have the opportunity and a place to go. So. Can you find any thoughts from
4: anybody else? Matt, you got anything to add? Or we'll well, can, y- can y'all hear
1: me in the back without a microphone <laughs> if I stand up here? Uh, Fred's hitting some really good points. and. I've been talking on this subject a lot, and I don't think it could be some of its access. I think what we're in a battle for, or what we're in a battle against more than anything, is time.
0: All right, that's all I've got for you guys for the free portion of this week's episode of the Turkey Hunter podcast. If you'd like to hear the rest of the seminar from the 2019 NWTF convention, then you will need to become a subscriber to the premium content of the Turkey Hunter podcast. And in order to become a subscriber, all you need to do is text the word Turkey Hunter. Make that one word and text it to the number 44222. From there, you just need to follow some simple instructions and then I'm going to email you a link that you can click on to create your username and password on the Podbean application and pay the $18 per year subscription fee for the premium content of the Turkey Hunter podcast. Your $18 will get you not only the rest of this week's episode, but it will get you the premium content from all of our past episodes, as well as the premium content for the next 52 weeks. There is a ton of content locked up in the premium subscription, and I do not think you'll be upset with what all you're getting for your $18 investment. With that said, I hope that you guys enjoyed the Future of Hunting seminar from the NWTF convention, and my favorite of the week is this. You know, we're rounding the time of year where some really fun hunting opportunities are coming up. Dove season is just around the corner for a lot of us. The upland bird seasons are just around the corner. Squirrel season is just around the corner. And there are a lot of opportunities for us to get some new hunters out into the woods to experience some of the most fun hunting that we do. Can you imagine how easy it would be to hook someone on the sport of hunting if you took them on a barn burner of a dove hunt or an upland bird hunt or a squirrel hunt where they got to watch the dogs work i mean if that doesn't get someone hooked on the sport of hunting i'm not real sure what would so my favorite of the week is for you guys to go to your state's department of conservation game and fish department whatever it is they happen to call it in the state that you live go to their website and look up mentored hunting opportunities and sign up to become a hunting mentor for someone if you do that That would be a big help for me, a big help for you, a big help for your children's generation, and a big help for all the critters that we hunt. And with that said, thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. I know that you have choices. I appreciate you spending your time with us. I hope you have a wonderful week, and I look forward to seeing you again next week. Goodbye. Thanks for tuning in. You were just listening to the Turkey Hunter podcast.
4: you would like to ask this panel pertaining to what we've talked about today. Um, raise your hand and move will the left if you want to discuss on the panel. Anybody have a question? Real. Okay. Thank you. I'm, I'm not a mic guy. I don't have a question. I have a comment. In court, what we've done here for the last weekend Listen to Jeremiah. We have to change the way we think. about We got to get over that drip and stuff. To use his words, we got to get over that. We have to change the way we focus as a culture. It's not about how much money we can make. From it. It's about bringing people back into the hunt. The way we, the way you and I did it. Way well, one I was sitting back there, and it's just like that's so powerful. We need
1: to change. It's not a question, it's just a
2: comment. You cool. mentioned you took 125 people, few people introduced them to honey in the last year. How do you reach out to those people? How do you contact them? How do you create awareness
5: and distribute that information? I I personally have not invited one of those people. Every one of those people have invited themselves. Um, and I think a lot of us can think back to that time that someone's asked us to go hunting. And as a lot of us said, we don't have time. And I make myself available. My wife knows it um, and she knows that, yes, it sucks that every Wednesday and Saturday I'm at the duck blind with five new people in the blind. But she understands why I'm doing it and she supports me. But I think the biggest thing is I have a 100% success rate on my social media for response rate. As I'm responding to the most dumbest, stupidest questions that are out there, And I'm answering it to get people excited about it. I mean, who in their right mind wants to know how to use something crazy? And if I don't know it, I'll tell them, I don't know, but I'm gonna research it. And I'll research the heck out of it and get back to them. But out of those 130 hunters, I didn't invite one person. All those people asked questions and then through that, it came into a conversation like, I want to take you hunting, or they wanted to go hunting. The vegans reached out to me, what do I gotta do to go hunting with you? And I was like, show up. I have more than enough guns, more than enough ammo, more than enough decoys, I've got more than enough everything. You show up and I'll make sure that you have a good time. And there's been times we don't, I take out, I took out 30 grown adults because they wanted to know what duck hunting was. In the middle of summer, we went and sat in a duck line with dogs and decoy spreads and we watched and calls, and We called in ducks and watched them land. I told them to stand up and take them. And they all pointed fake guns and shot and the ducks flew away. And the dogs ran out and got decoys and got stuff. And it got them so passionate about wanting to go out that when fall came, guess what, I got 30 phone calls Is it duck season yet? No, not yet. Duck season yet? Nope. And so we actually had a day at one of our local refuges that I talked to the the guy who manages it and said, Hey, I need 30 blinds. He goes, There's no way. So I told him what happened. He goes, Okay, I'll get you 30 blinds. And we had a bunch of volunteers that came out that just sat in blinds with people and they shot ducks. I meant, it'd be amazing to see everyone that shot a coot and got so excited. And I was like, Oh, you've never eaten one. Uh, But that's where it it lies. It's not being afraid to just. go out with somebody and when they ask you it's sort of like how many of y'all been like I'll pray for you and then go home and never pray for that person Um, if you say it you do it and you mean it so if you say you're gonna take them out hunting as sucky as that is on a Saturday when it's the middle of deer season and the rut's on you take that person out and you let them shoot that buck that walked out because that's the story of their life you've shot a million bucks who cares you know how cool is it to put a trail camera up with a new hunter versus you uh, with another deer on the wall because it's just another deer on the wall to most of us so
4: Yes, sir. right here in front. I'm sorry, i will coming right back to you. Right so, I, my question is uh, how, What would be some suggestions to work with our local industry people, you know, the, the mom and pop stores that sell your equipment and stuff? Because one thing I found is, is um, I do a Learn to Hunt class, and I go to a range in the, uh, the mom and pop stores want
1: to charge for my, my students to go there and learn how to shoot shotguns. How would I approach them to get them to buy in on us? I think you got to join forces with the conservation group and get somebody behind you. You know maybe they got a budget. Maybe it's NRA, maybe it's NWTF. But you know, it's, mom and pop's got to make a living too. That's a tough question right there. But I think if you join forces with somebody and then have some letterhead and stuff like that. And then you get their attention. Hey, I'm going to bring possible new customers in here. That's what I would do. I'd join forces. Tell them you're planting the seed. Yeah, yeah,
2: that's what they're investing in planting the seed for potential new customers
5: down the road. So, so what I've found is when I teach classes, is whatever product I'm using, that new hunter wants to go out and buy. Plain and simple. If I teach them on a, on a brand new Remington, The first gun they go out and buy is that same exact revenue, that same exact ammo, that same exact vortex scope and that same exact everything because I taught them, they learned it, they felt comfortable with it. So when you talk to these companies, my big pitch is that I, I tell everyone, I don't want to make any money off of you. All I want you to do is support me when I'm supporting these other people. And so for them, it's like, hey, if I tell them that we're using your product in your store, when those kids want to go out or those adults want to go back out, the one place they know that supports them is that place that supported them. So even getting a discount from people, getting them, maybe not, hey, don't supply everything, but all we want from you is hats for every single person to wear. And the hats are three bucks or six bucks a hat. And So you look at these ideas, but a lot of people go in and say, I want ammo, I want guns, I want this, I want this, I want this, that's a lot of money. But you start small, and what happens is they start to see that kid walking down the street, they've got that hat on, and it's all muddy and gutty. And they know that, hey, that kid is getting it, and then that kid's gonna come in and spend money. But I think the biggest thing is just starting small and working up from there. I've had good success using conservation groups:
3: Uh, Ducks Unlimited, uh, Waterfowl USA, Delta Waterfowl, NWTF, uh, a lot of state chapters. They hold some money in those chapters and some of the conservation, and they're always looking to do stuff. But we do a lot of stuff with pheasants forever. and once you get them involved, they tend to be able to put network together. And instead of having five or six kids, you got 10 or 15 of them. And then you get manufacturers, you got people and you got volunteers uh, to show up and help do that as well. So conservation or in my state, the state of Ohio is very, very involved in that. So anytime we wanna do something, we reach out to them and it's more, more strength than
4: numbers for sure. Gotcha, thank you. We have one more. Hi so
5: um, Mr. Strickland you were talking about how uh, women are natural born hunters too which I totally agree with Um, Could you expand on that a little bit? So, What was that question?
1: Girls are natural born hunters Oh they are I mean I had all girls growing up you know I have daughters and they were always more alert more attentive better shots and like I say now those my girls are mothers and they're more focused on where that meat's coming from so I I tend to kind of lean toward females, middle-aged females to because they're kind of taking control of what their family's eating. That's I kind of searched them out to do hunts with. I think that's the that's a, I mean that's one number of hunting licenses that is going to be So You know when you're surrounded by women you, they get most of your attention anyway. So it's easy for me to reach out to females. You know to answer a real quick question for them they they hit on it. You can get involved.
4: You can make a difference. Um, there are opportunities for everyone in this room out there. All the guys have hit on it. Whether whatever conservation organization, particularly with us, you know we have volunteers. We have Save the Hunt coordinators in a lot of our states. We have R3 coordinators in several states that we provide that information. That are out there. They're the driving force for us in this movement and you have opportunity to reach out to them you have opportunity to mentor someone or to get involved or to host an event you know working with someone uh to answer that question how do you get support from the mom and pops and the industry the first thing that i've done which has helped me with the program at headquarters is tell the message tell them exactly what we've been in here talking about and when they realize that and they know a lot of times you're going to get support that you never thought you were going to get just by telling them the message and they'll sell that message and we have opportunities for everybody in this room to mentor to be a part learn to hunt whatever it may be but needing you to get involved and share that experience how many of you i see some of them out there now our campaign for this convention was the mentor pledge you know pledge to become a mentor and we have that I see some badges if you're not familiar we have it here we're gonna ask the guys on the panel we have a mentor pledge up there you know that they're gonna take that pledge with us and pledge to be that mentor this coming spring springs right around the corner Um, opportunity is there guys share the experience share the tradition make sure that you know we continue on what we're doing I think we've we've kind of well rounded this committee because Jeremiah showed you where we're going where we're at today and the groups we need to be focused on but you have the rest of the guys on the panel talking about you know where they see it how important it is because you know we've all lived that tradition we've all grown up and you know each and every day you know I've heard them mention about uh, Jeremiah talking about (coughs) folks from international countries you know one of our things at NWTF is taking college students and we've had opportunity uh, to take out new hunters that are college students, clemson university how many clemson fans in the room don't throw anything at me anyway you know they have an opportunity to learn to hunt you know clemson's an ag forestry school and they surveyed the campus uh somewhere around 60 percent of that population that they surveyed never hunted never fished never picked up a gun so they have this program and we have that opportunity we've been sharing that but I'll tell one last story and then I'm gonna let these guys get out of here because I know they've got to go we mentioned it we took a guy from China on a deer hunt I was telling I told Manny about this he came on his first hunt he didn't harvest a deer we took him out and he was around he showed up in blue jeans converse tennis shoes um, and some kind of deck one of our mentors takes him out to have a blast and the mentor comes back and said man that was great yeah. I really didn't understand him but we had a great time. I told him, I said, okay, come back. We're going to do another He comes back. He's already gone to like the Walmart, bought him a Mossy Oak t-shirt. So, you know, you're making an impact. You can make an impact. Guys, I really appreciate y'all being here today. It, I think it's important. It's going to take partnerships. It's going to take us all to make a big impact. Guys, thank you for coming.